Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter, the first chapter. I want to speak to you about uh, our inheritance. Did you know you're in the Lord's will? I mean, His last will and testament. Did you know that? Your name is in the Lord's will. If you are a child of God, you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to read here in the Scripture in just a moment. Uh, while you, uh-oh, I've worn out the batteries. And while you're turning to First Peter, it says, "And if in Romans eight seventeen it says, and if children and heirs, heirs of God and joint Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him." that we may also be glorified together with Him. Amen? Do you hear that? If children, then heirs. And joint heirs, that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean this, that, that Mike Andrews is going to get a bigger share than me. Or that I'm going to get a bigger share than him because we're joint heirs together. That means we all get to share it all. Isn't that wonderful? Now, no human will is written that way, but God's will is written that way. If we're children, then we are heirs, and we are joint heirs in Christ Jesus. Then in Peter, Peter goes on to say this. Hand off. Yes. Thank you. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Okay? He's made us born again to a living hope that we might have an inheritance. And then it describes it. An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you're grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith may be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have a beef with Paul and Peter about their long sentences. And about their big words. But there's so much to say about Jesus. It just takes every 
every letter of, of every word to say it. Because who can express the inexpressible? Who can describe the indescribable? Amen. But this morning, I want you to think with me for a moment about the wonder of you and I being joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? And how does it apply to our lives? And how should it affect how we live? So I want us to think about this. First of all, let me tell you that uh, it's a guarantee that Jesus is God's heir because he only had one son, and he was the first son. He was the only begotten son. There were no other sons, so he is the heir. So he has a right to share his inheritance with us. I want to establish that as a legal uh, fact or a true fact of Scripture that Jesus is God's heir because he is his only begotten son. And the Father has already caused all things to be given into his hand. Amen? And so the thing is, it's there with the Lord as God's only begotten son, the first, the eldest, the only one. Hallelujah. But now we have to consider the fact that we are joint heirs together with him. And that is very, very difficult for us to grasp. Excuse me for me. It's hot out there. It's dry in here. But anyway. So most of us have a hard time because we're used to thinking of ourselves almost as those who are orphans or abandoned or alone. Amen. You talk to most people, they, they fight with loneliness. A lot of people fight with a feeling of nothingness or less, not having value, not having worth. And yet the Lord's saying to us, you have value and you have worth because you are my children, you are my sons, and you are my heirs. So I am imparting value upon you. I'm imparting value to you. When I was in high school English class, my English teacher, Mrs. Hyam, made us read a great English novel written by Charles Dickens called Great Expectations. And then if that wasn't enough, when I got into college, I was in another literature course, and I had to read it again, and I had to write a paper about it. So I have uh, digested this novel a couple times in my life, and it is an incredible, it's incredible uh, uh, book and, and incredible novel, uh, so to speak, because in this book, even though it's a book of fiction, there's an incredible truth. There's a young man named Pip, and Pip is an orphan. And Pip lives with his mean older sister and her nice husband, who's a blacksmith, and uh, kind of rough, but at least he's gentle and uh, sort of kind and, and has uh, mercy on Pip. But they live in a very common, very poor surrounding. They live out on the marshes of England, and you think it's wet and foggy and damp and dewy around here. It's nothing compared to there. Okay? So that's where Pip lived. And that's how Pip lived. 
And one day Pip went to the, uh, the graveyard to, to visit the grave, probably of his parents. And while he was there, he came upon an escaped criminal, a runaway criminal. And uh, anyway, this man was desperate for help. He had, he had uh, iron uh, cuffs around his, his hands and his feet and uh, desperately needed somebody to bring him a file so he could file those off and release himself from those chains. And he was also desperately hungry and he needed food. And he asked Pip if Pip would go back to his house and get some food and get a file and come back so that he could have what he's needed. And so Pip, very afraid of this man, but at the same time, having some compassion upon him, brings him some bread and brings him an iron file, and he's able to set himself free. It's not too long after that that a, a rich woman uh, down the road in another neighborhood, Mrs. Havisham, wants to meet this young man, Pip. And so she begins to invite him to her house, and Pip is treated to uh, tea and crumpets, typical English fare, but very much better than what he was used to. And he was invited there because Miss Havisham um, had uh, uh, been jilted uh, many years ago. I almost said hundreds of years before, but many years before and had never married and was alone and, and was just needed Pip as somebody she could relate to and talk to. So she brought him into her home and he became her friend. Well, there was a girl living in that home named Estelle. And so Estelle was this beautiful girl, a little bit older than Pip, and he began to have an expectation maybe that she would like him. And that they, you know, the, the, anyway, so... Uh, and he's getting used to living a little better at Miss Havisham's than he's living at his sister's. You getting the picture here? Then suddenly, someone becomes a benefactor to Pip and provides money so Pip can go to London to be well-educated in a very good school and be able to be taught how to be a gentleman. Now, Pip, you see, he thinks his benefactor is Miss Havisham. He thinks she's the one who's had mercy upon him. But in actual fact, it's not Miss Havisham who's the benefactor, but it's the very prisoner that he helped out there in the graveyard. And so here Pip gets this help, and eventually... You know, he, he confronts Miss Havisham because she made him, kind of made him think that she was his benefactor when she wasn't. But here's poor Pip bouncing around wondering who cares about me and who's taking care of me and, and somebody is helping me live a better life. So in a sense, he had become an heir. And then this criminal that he helped was eventually killed and when he was, then Pip received the inheritance from his estate. Probably some of it was stolen. But anyway, Pip was blessed by this unknown benefactor. Now I share that with you this morning 
Because I think most of us can kind of relate more to the pips than the Miss Habishams. Right? But the fact of the matter is, is we're better off than all of them. Because we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But we have a mentality that you get what you deserve, that you get what you earn. And even though we live in America, we believe you're born into a station and that has a lot to do. Amen. People talk about privilege. Amen. Um, and so all of us kind of wonder about how much privilege we had. Um, my privilege was to work chores all the time and try to help a big family make a, a little bit of money go a long, long ways. And uh, so I never felt super privileged. I felt more privileged than some that I knew. But you aren't born into this. You're born again into this. And that's what First Peter says. We are born again into a lively hope and into an inheritance through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I love how it sounds in the Greek because the word resurrection is anastasis. The word being born again is anagonosis. And because Jesus is anastasis, you and I can be anagonosis. Because he's risen again from the dead, we can be brought to life through the rebirth experience. That's how it comes. Not by natural birth. Not by position. Not by privilege. It's not related to any of that. It's not by our own efforts. Or by our own attainment. How many here have a try, try harder button somewhere? Has your pastor, can I tell you to burn it? We don't get places in the kingdom of God by trying harder, but by receiving what God has provided. That is how we are to live as receivers, not achievers. And, and this is an incredible experience because normally to get an inheritance, you have to wait for somebody to die. Because the inheritance cannot be distributed until the, the, the benefactor or the testator dies. Right? But Jesus died and rose again. Why? Because we're joint heirs. He wants to share it with us. And he wants us to have an experience of sharing with him. And in order to do that, he has to be alive. And because he's alive, we can be alive. And because he is alive and empowered, we can be alive and empowered. That's the truth of Christianity. And that's what it means to be a joint heir of Jesus Christ. Now I want to tell you some good news about the legal side of this. Because if you have a physical inheritance, it's always a little bit iffy. Well, will they spend it before you get there? Maybe you've been like me riding down the freeway somewhere and see an RV going down the road and two seniors driving the RV and on the back it says, we're spending our children's inheritance. 
So anyway, just having an inheritance in the physical realm, doesn't, just because it's there doesn't mean it's all going to be there. And whether you get any of it or how much of it you get may be up to question. But our inheritance is reserved in heaven. Nobody can get to it. Nobody can diminish it. Nobody can take from it. It's reserved, kept. It's kept, and we're kept by the power of God. It's kept, and we're kept by the power of God. You guys ought to be shouting and jumping up and down and hollering this morning because this is good news. Amen? First of all, we're written in a will of of the wealthiest person in the universe who has all power, all riches, all honor, all glory belong to him, and he has made us heirs with him. Now we're together in that. So we got to get used to sharing. But believe me, there's more than enough to go around. I just have an idea, Mike, that if you dip into the Lord's bank account, the minute you take it out, there's more goes in. I just, somehow, I just think it's inexhaustible. That the riches of God are unmeasurable, inexhaustible. So, you know, we don't, we don't have to worry about those things. And what we have received is full salvation. That's what Peter goes on to say. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, one of my big beefs as a pastor and as a teacher is most people think of salvation as only means I don't have to go to hell and my sins have been forgiven. But God's idea of salvation is completely different than that. It begins with the forgiveness of your sins. It it begins with the pardoning so that you're no longer guilty. And because you're no longer guilty, you're not going to come under punishment or wrath or judgment. That is a wonderful thing about salvation. But that is just the first sentence and the first paragraph of a very long book of what salvation is. Because salvation is healing for our bodies. Salvation is healing for our minds, our souls, our spirits. I can't even begin to tell you this morning about the the many things that I have experienced as the salvation of God became manifested in my life. I remember a service in, in this church, not this building, but in this church, about 35, 36 years ago. And Judy had to work that morning, so I came to church by myself with two young boys. And, and I have great understanding and grace for those of you who bring small children to church with you. Because I had that big one and another one sort of like him, one on one side and the other on the other side. And trying to get them happy was a full-time job. Trying to get them to sit still, be quiet was a full-time job. And trying to get them from pestering. Because as soon as I got this one quiet, the other one reached around, slapped him in the back of the head. So I was sort of outmanned. But I remember Pastor Doug, who was senior pastor at that time, sitting up on the front row, turning around and looking at me. And he was a prophet. He was an incredible man of God. And he just looked at me. He saw me back there struggling with those two boys. He stood up. He walked back with purpose. 
And he got Jonathan and Joel, and he brought them up and put him on either side of him, and those boys turned into angels. <laughs> but that was just a little miracle compared to what happened next. Because as soon as they were gone, the presence of the Lord came upon me so powerfully. And I felt the Lord doing something in my life. And I can't even tell you what he did or how he did it. I just know that when I walked out of there that day, I was a different person. Emotions that had struggled with all my life were gone. A way of thinking in my brain was changed. It was transformed. It's Jesus. As Jesus transformed me, and I came into a part of my inheritance, of that salvation that would change me. And I, you know, I desperately, I told you to burn your will try button because I had tried to change myself, and I managed successfully to make things worse. I was very good at it. But in a moment, a supernatural moment of God's grace and of God's glory, he transformed me instantly. In some area of my life, not completely, but that part of my heart and my mind that he touched that morning, let me know of a salvation, a wonderful salvation. The Lord knows what you need. The Lord knows what I need. And he's able to save us to the uttermost. I love it. He's able to save us to the uttermost, to the utter worst. From the utter worst to the utter better. <laughs> much gooder. Whatever you call it, the much more wonderful. Something. But the Lord transforms us. Amen. And so I have experienced those miracles. I have experienced other miracles. I, I was always afraid to be wrong. But one night, washing dishes with my wife. You might want to wash dishes with your wife. But I, just once in a while, because sometimes miracles occur when you wash dishes with your wife, at least in my house. It's a miracle that I was washing dishes with my wife. I know that. But... You know, and she turned to me and she said, John, I have a word from the Lord for you because there was a struggle going on in my soul. And she said to me, John, if you can just be wrong, you'll be okay. And my Swedish kicked in. And I go, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, but. You know, which is. The Swedish escape mechanism, at least in my life. But I knew that it wasn't my wife I was up against. It was up, I was up against the Lord. And I had a little conversation. I've told many of you about it. And I said, Lord, I'm not completely wrong. I might be half wrong. Guess what he said? John, you're wrong. I went to three-fourths, 75%. I'll give you that, Lord. No, John, you're wrong. 
I went all the way up to about 98 or 99 percent. He says, no, John, you are wrong. And then I answered the Lord and my wife at the same time. And I said to them, you're right. I'm wrong. When I said that, the Lord spoke to me and said, John, you're right now because you agree with me. That gave me a whole new definition of what right and wrong is. You're right now because you agree with me. And I felt just this infusion of love from the Lord like nothing. I'd ever felt before. I'd felt his love, but I felt it in a deeper way than I ever felt it before that day because of what the Lord was doing in that moment. And then my wife ran over to me and she says, John, I will always love you. You do not have to be right for me to love you. Do you know how powerful that is? Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me with that kind of love. But that love is powerful and it transforms us and it changes us. That's what it took for me. I can't tell you what it takes for you. Only God knows. But God knows the depths of our soul. And he's not afraid to shine his light into the darkest shadow of our hearts. He's not afraid to go where we are afraid to go. There were some doors in my heart I tried to nail shut. I did for a while. But the Lord's a carpenter. He fixed that. I want to go in there. I don't want to go in there. I want to go in there. I don't know if I want to go in there with you. You don't have to let me in there. Does that make sense? That's real to me. Because there were things I was afraid to know about myself things that and that wasn't that at all but nevertheless I that was a struggle and salvation brings an end to the struggles and brings us peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ which is one of the most incredible miracles of all you're looking at a super former super champion warrior warrior I said warrior Worrier. My wife can tell you I was the best. I could worry a hole through that wall six foot thick. I was a good worrier. But one day I was in a mess in a, in a service just like this one, and the, and the pastor said, Worry is a sin. I went, Wow. It's not a habit, it's a sin. If it's a sin, I can give it to Jesus. And I can be forgiven. And I can be changed. And I gave my warrior to Jesus. And my wife now worries that I don't worry. (laughs) But that's salvation. That's salvation. I'm going to keep telling you the gospel. I'm going to keep telling you about salvation because there's nothing in your life that needs to be changed that Jesus cannot change. There is nothing impossible with God. 
He knows the depths of our souls. He knows the recesses of our heart. Hallelujah. Now, with every benefit and privilege that are given, comes a bit of responsibility. I'm a pastor who tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, okay? Now, if God gives us everything, that's a lot. But what did Jesus say about those who were given a lot? He says, to whom much is given, much is required. Now, I'm going to talk about some of our responsibilities in dealing with the heirs, with the benefits that we have as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, when I was, um, let's see, how old was I? I was 13, 14 years old when uh, the Phoenix Candy Company came out with a new kind of candy called Now and Later. How many of you have eaten Nows and Laters? Well, they're, they're like a little package of four squares of, of taffy, individually wrapped. And uh, when I first found the Now and Laters, I could get two for a penny, which gave me eight pieces of taffy. Some for now, and some for later. Okay. So the thing was, is because I love candy, I ate my laters now. <laughs> There's the parable of the prodigal son, who said, Father, give me now. Give it to me now. I want my privilege now. Or like the ugly old ad on television. If, if I ever hear it again, I may shoot the television. It's my money, and I want it now. <laughs> you heard it? Don't ever want to hear it again. But the prodigal got his inheritance now. And he took it and he spent it on foolish stuff and, and wasted it on empty entertainments and spent it on foolish, selfish friends. He was eating his laters now. Many of us have done that. But Peter says, you have to be patient. You have to be patient. Not everything happens all at once, Eric. Now, Pastor Judy asked a very bold question of one of our former senior pastors and said, why doesn't God just change me all at once? She looked at her like she was crazy and said, Judy, if she did that, you'd wake up, you wouldn't even know who you are. So the thing is, is God doesn't change everything all at once. It's probably a good thing for our sake and the sake of those around us. But anyway... The thing is, is he changes things in our life through a process, through a pilgrimage. Amen. But he keeps changing. Paul, you know, as, as we look, Paul says in first, Second Corinthians 3, as we see him, we are transformed into his image from glory to glory. That is incredible. That's one of my favorite verses, to be changed into his image from glory to glory to glory. I don't know about you, but I'm not happy with the glory yet. 
I want all that glory that God has for me, and I want all that glory that God has for you. But you have to wait sometimes upon the Lord. Amen. You can ask the Lord to deal with something, and he will, but he'll choose the time, and he'll choose the way to do that. And so one of the one of the responsibilities of our privilege as the benefactors of the will or the inheritance of the Lord is that we have to possess it in patience. Um, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be. Aren't you glad for those three words? <laughs> if need be. You have been grieved by various trials that the the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the resurrection or the revelation of Jesus Christ. Men, when he comes again. The testing of our faith, Lindsay was sharing how this thing with the coronavirus is a testing, amen. But it's, and, and, and Pastor John Branson was sharing last week about the pressure of the Lord pressurizing us to manifest and to bring forth, amen. And so, and, and there's so many parables in, in the Gospels about this as the Lord in the last day will separate the wheat from the chaff, as he'll separate the wheat from the tares, amen. The wheat from the chaff. The ch you know what the chaff is in your life and my life? It's a necessary stage of growth that leads to maturation. If you go to eastern Washington, you look out on the wheat fields right now, the wheat grains are covered with chaff. But without that chaff surrounding that grain, it will not grow, it will not mature, and it will not come to fullness. But when that grain comes to fullness and is ready to be used, the chaff has to go away. And the chaff is removed as a part of a... I don't think any of us ever want to go through a wheat combine. Because that thing's going to get rid of the chaff and the straw and leave the seeds. And it does a very, very good job of it, but it goes through great tribulation to do it. Shaking it down until it's purified. And so the thing is, is that's, we have to understand there's chaff in your life, there's chaff in my life that was necessary for a period of time, but when that seed matures, it, that chaff needs to go away. Now the tares are different than the wheat because the wheat is planted as a growth of a seed that God has planted. The tares grow as a seed the enemy has planted. And in every life, there are tares. That's why I was talking about the pure desire class. It's a good place to go and let the Lord pull up some tares in your life. Because if you believe the wrong thing about sexuality, it's going to mess you up until you have those tares removed. Until somebody pulls up those lies and overcomes that deception, you're going to struggle with that. But though you've got to give the Lord a chance. You've got to give yourself a chance. And you've got to take the steps it would take Amen, for that separation to take place, knowing God loves us enough, amen, to separate the wheat from the tares. And by the way, he just tells us not to do it, that he'll do it. But we have to let him do it, and we have to want him to do it. I don't know about you. I don't want a bunch of weeds in my, my wheat patch. 
I want those tares to go, but I want them to go when God's ready for them to go. And he says he'll first gather the tares, throw them in the fire, and then he'll gather the wheat. That's a different parable. And I know it has different meanings, but it shows us something. Amen. That, that the tares will go too. The tares will go too. Amen. But you and I don't always have the power to deal with those tares. God does have the power. If we'll let him, he'll work it out in our life. He will pull up those tares and replace them with his wheat. Hallelujah. Now, if I can have a couple more moments. Privilege provokes jealousy. Privilege provokes jealousy. <laughs> How many of you ever got put on the honor roll? What's my personal opinion after some experiences, it should be called the dishonor roll. Because as soon as the teacher starts bragging on you, recess turns into tribu tribulation. And all the people who didn't do so well on their last report card will be dealing with you because you've made them look bad. There's a lot of that that goes on because... Uh, you know, the privilege that we carry as the children of God draws some attention. If you don't believe me, ask Job. Ask Job. He was blessed out of his socks, literally. But anyway, I don't use literally, except literally. But, well, so when I say it, I mean what I'm saying. But by the time he went through his trial, he damn his socks left. But the thing is, is, God gave him back more than he lost. But having that privilege, having that blessing of God upon our life does attract some jealousy. So Jesus speaks of that in Matthew 21, verse 38. He says, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him that we might seize the inheritance the devil doesn't have any new strategies. He's still out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Because he doesn't get to have our inheritance. But he likes to think that he could, by killing us, obtain it. But he can't. But that isn't going to keep him or stop him from trying. I thank God for the grace of God that separates us by inches from destruction. Pastor Jonathan will share with you probably sometime in the next few months an experience that he had where he pulled over on a freeway and let a guy go by him. And as he slowed down and the guy pulled by him and drew up to the next to the car in front of him, that car swerved to miss a dog and hit him. If Jonathan had not pulled over, that would have been him. Seriously injured that person. Jonathan was there to pray for him. Praise God. But the thing is that you and I don't always realize how the hand of God is there to protect us from the hatred and from the evil and from the destruction of the enemy that is around us. But I want to assure you this morning that you and I are kept by the power of God. We're kept by the power of God. But I want to give you some practical instruction. When you are hated, when someone is jealous what do you do? You don't go to them and try to talk them out of it. I'll tell you that much. 
Because I don't know a remedy except repentance for someone to give up their jealousy. But the Bible tells us when they hate you in one city, flee to another. And so the thing is, is if somebody's hating you, somebody's jealous, then you need to find people who love you and run into their arms. You need to know who loves you so you can go be with them. You need to know that you can run into the arms of Jesus and he is going to pour his love out upon you. But you and I will suffer from the jealousy of the people in this world who are determined to be jealous. We will suffer from the jealousy of an enemy who would like to destroy us and wipe us out, but he can't. And then the devil fights hard because he knows his time is short. He only has a limited amount of time. I love the illustration my professor at seminary gave us. He and another man were out going door to door, uh, sharing the gospel in a certain town. And they went up to this one house, and they, suddenly they hear this dog, a Doberman pincher, come running around the side of the house, barking and growling, comes flying around the corner, comes up next to the steps that they're on, and leaps. And they put their arms up, and they're expecting the teeth of that dog to bite into their arms or their neck or something. And then they hear an almighty big yelp. And the thing is, is that Doberman was on a chain. And the owner had made sure that chain was not long enough to reach the front porch. And I want you to know that when you're knocking on the door of the Lord's house, the devil's on a chain and he cannot reach the porch. God will keep us. We are kept by the power of God. But the thing is, we do need to make some decisions. We live in a fallen world where nothing's perfect. And so we have to deal with evil. Now the last warning and instruction I want to give you is don't sell out. Don't sell your inheritance. Don't sell your inheritance. Again, TV commercials encourage us to do what? Take cash settlements. You have an annuity, take a cash settlement. You have an insurance policy, take a cash settlement. That's again, what is it? Eating your laters now. Okay. But they say, sell it. Sell it. It's worth something. Sell it. Esau sold his for a bowl of porridge. I don't know about you, but oatmeal is not one of my favorite foods. Especially when it's made out of barley. <laughs> but that's what caused Esau to sell his birthright. Was he was hungry. And he had to have something to eat right now. So he sold his birthright. Hebrews says, look careful. Look carefully. Looking carefully. Because you're a benefactor, you need to watch carefully. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. That is a solemn warning. Don't be like Esau. 
You have a birthright. You've been born right by the Holy Spirit. You've been born right. You've been born again of the Lord. You have a birthright that makes you an heir of Jesus Christ. Don't fall for the devil's deception. Don't fall for that temptation to turn long-term benefits into temporary gratification. It's just a bowl of boring porridge. Don't trade oatmeal at Denny's for a sit-down banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have the immediate privileges of sonship and the ultimate privileges of being heirs. Amen. And this world can spin us and confuse us and give us, put us into an identity crisis. But I'm telling you, the Lord is here this morning to affirm who we are, to affirm to you his love, and to remind you, you are a child and you are an heir of the Lord Jesus Christ.